I have been craving white wine above all else the last, like, three weeks. Really? I, it's so un-me, but it's like, when I'm like, oh, I want to go home, I want to have a glass of wine, I'm sitting here thinking about, like, and not even Chardonnay, fucking Sauvignon Blanc, what have you done to me? I I think I broke you. I think you opened my eyes. I'm just <laughs> going to be positive about it. But no, I, I just literally, I've had more white wine this, like, early spring than I feel like I ever have, and... It's just one of those things that part of what I love about this podcast and like trying all these wines, this would not have happened uh, without the podcast. I can basically guarantee that. (laughs) Yeah, no, fair. I um, honestly have had like no um, opinion one way or the other. It's usually just like I I will decide when I'm at the store what I'm feeling. Yeah, just like, you know, you walk in, you're like looking at the aisle like, okay, which label do I want today? Pretty much. (laughs) Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I've got wine on the mind already. I guess I do every time we record, though. Fair. Yeah, this is definitely one of those days that I am looking so forward to the wine we're about to drink, like, more than usual. As y'all know, last episode, my wine was, uh... A nightmare. Oh, yeah. Oh my um, god. That was the wine you spit out. <laughs> it was. And I'm a little little scared of the one today too, but um I, even with that, I'm just I, I want my wine. I want a glass right now. Um I will just say and I think this will be um a blanket statement for us all. The last few weeks have been rough. Yeah. It's been a rough time. We're not we're not even really going to talk about it because I know it's all anyone is hearing, but literally it's been difficult and we just have to support us, support each other and lift each other up because these are rough fucking times, guys. Yes. And also stock up on wine. Seriously, though, a few weeks ago, I literally went to Trader Joe's and spent like $100 on wine. And, you know, I should have just bought like a couple cases of two buck chuck. I didn't. But looking back, I should have. But I was just like, ooh, I'm going to get this one. I'm going to get that one. I bought half white wine because, like I said, apparently it's my thing now. <laughs> and and now you got the variety. I do. I even bought some rosé because I was like, oh, you know, it's like warm outside. Maybe you know, I'm going to want some fucking rosé. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm. Well, with that, um, I'm just going to jump straight forward into Patreon. If y'all have not checked out our Patreon, it is an awesome community of supporters you can check out all our different Murder Mini episodes. We have um, 40-something now. So if you are wanting more crime, more true crime, all the things, check out our Patreon. Check out our Murder Minis. Yeah. Also, have you subscribed to us? Answer below. Uh, but if you haven't, be sure that you have. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. We're pretty much on everyone you can find. So go ahead and subscribe. You get that auto-download. You're going to be able to listen to our episodes every Tuesday. So, Tyler, I won last week. Yeah, you've won, like, the last three weeks in a row. I mean, I don't know. I'm just picking good cases, or horrible cases, however you want to look at that. But, so, you had the pleasure of picking the topic yet again, and um, I, you know what topic you picked, so why don't you tell our listeners? Well, I'm just going to go ahead and say that, uh, I don't see me losing this episode. Oh, damn. Okay. Um, I don't see that happening. Uh, because I was thinking, you know, let's bring some heavy hitters. 
it's been a hot minute since we've done some really insane cases. I say that. We do insane cases every single week. I was going to say, what are you talking um, about? <laughs> but I really wanted to to go big. And so our topic for today is brutal murders. Which honestly, that is so intense in in and of itself. So it's like, okay, yep, these cases are going to be a lot because if you're defining them as brutal, and especially, oh my God, when you Google brutal murder, that oh. means the word brutal is in the headline. And so it's generally pretty bad. So yeah, they yeah. are definitely some of the most nightmarish cases I have uh, looked into and researching uh, this one that I'm going to do today was uh, was a lot. So uh, I'm very excited uh, that we're going to have wine, even more so than I was before. Well, I mean, you never do a little, so I expect True. it to be a lot. Well, with that, uh, can I tell you about my wine? It's obviously a white wine. <laughs> yes. Uh, what wine are you drinking today? So I picked the 2018 Vin de Bordeaux Sauvignon de Seguin from Bordeaux, France. So I think I said that right. Oof, that's a mouthful. I know. So we'll we'll see. Um, but another amazing thing about this wine is that it is only $8 at Trader Joe's, which gotta love it. Oh, that's always wonderful. However, unlike most of the wines that we get at Trader Joe's, unless it's one of the ones that you can find like everywhere, like J. Lore or something, um, I was actually able to find the winery. So this one, I, I'm, no, not I'm pretty sure. I know for sure because I went to the winery's website and found this bottle. It's from Chateau de Seguin, Seguin which is obviously in Bordeaux. So this is a bold, dry white wine with medium acidity made from 100% Sauvignon Blanc grapes. Um, I will absolutely admit when I picked it up and I was like, Sauvignon de Seguin. I was like, ooh, a new grape. No, it's it's Sauvignon nope. Blanc. <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> but it is a bright, pale yellow color with some green reflections. And it's a complex and powerful nose of citrus with like some pink grapefruit um, and also some nice minerality. It's got a full mouth and it's underlined with a really beautiful acid frame and just adding in more of like those aromatics of grapefruit. And it's got a long and powerful finish that is enhanced by that acidity. So grapefruit juice is what I'm hearing. That sounds amazing. It does sound really good. Um, so I'm really excited to try it. And it's got your basic French bottle looking wine. You just yeah. you just know it's French by looking at it. And it's got the pretty green type with like the, what's the word? Font? Metallic. Oh. <laughs> It's like green metallic font, yes. <laughs> there we go. Um, but okay, I'm gonna open her up. You're struggling. This one's stuck. Did you hear that sound? It's like like I'm just trying to rip the cork out. <laughs> oh my god. The world just knows how bad I need this wine, and so it's like, let's make this really difficult. There we go. Tyler, that was crazy, okay? That was, yeah, you you struggled for a hot minute there. Even more time than you heard, listeners. That was a big struggle. Oh, it is pale. Sorry, I hit the glass. I'm just like banging and hitting and not able to open the wine. It just shows you how bad I need it. Oh my god, it smells so good. Also, by the way, listeners, I did totally spoil everything about my wine before I ever told you what it was, because I'm pretty sure I said I've been obsessed with white Sauvignon Blancs. And obviously, y'all know I love French wine. So, I've never had this one, though. 
I'm excited to see what you think. <laughs> um, what wine did you pick that you're kind of scared of? So as you may remember, last week I had a uh, very cheap uh, sparkling wine that was uh, impossible to drink. I spit it out. I have never done that before on this podcast. But <laughs> I wanted to kind of find a similar one for redemption. So I'm doing another bubbly. And this one was two ninety nine. Oh my god. Okay, dude. You are risking th- this again. You're risking. Can I can I, you see what it looks like though? Does this one look as like confetti y as the other? No, it looks like a typical bottle of um like cheap bubbly. It does. It it reminds me of Andre. Yeah. So I bet it'll be fine. I'm not really worried about this one because I got a dry one. And I should probably tell y'all the name of it. It's the J. Roger American Champagne Brut. Uh, so it's dry. It's not sweet. And fun fact, the worst bubbly, if it's dry, you can save it with a little bit of orange juice, turn it into a mosa. So you have orange juice? I have a big ass bottle of Simply Orange <laughs> that is sitting on my desk here. Which honestly, I'm kind of shocked we haven't done mimosas. Like, we're, we missed that fall. Yeah. It's probably because we always record in the evening, and I just feel like mimosas after, I don't know, 5 p.m. is kind of weird, but it's totally not, and it's what I'm doing today. I know, I was about to say, except it's what you're possibly doing tonight, so. Yeah. Possibly, Um, probably. We'll see. We'll see. So, the J. Roger, um, they're your typical low-cost bubbly wine. Um, It's American. Probably going to taste very similar to an Andre or a Cook's. Um, But the sparkling wine, it's medium dry. It has crisp fruit flavors. They aged it in 100% stainless steel, so it's not oaky at all. The aromas are described as a bouquet of toasty yeast notes and floral nuances, which is like the most basic wine description. I'm like, you essentially told me it smells like wine and tastes like wine. Uh-huh. They're like, you know what? It's $3 and it tastes like wine. Pretty much. And for this one, I picked uh, three different reviews to read and they run the full gambit. Love so, it. So the first one, this isn't your fine French champagne. It's a fine mixer with orange juice or cranberry. It's cheap and great for a party. And I'm like, cool. Got it. Second one said, love this. That's all they said. So <laughs> they loved it. Uh, the last one... um, I literally could have chosen something out of my cat's litter box that would have tasted better than this. Oh, shit. <laughs> so I honestly have no idea what this is going to taste like, um, but I'm going to get it opened. And of course, like many uh, cheaper bottles of champagne, it doesn't even have, I say champagne, sparkling wine. It doesn't even have the like cage and the cork. It's it's a cap. It's literally a screw top. Oh, that is bubbly. That's very bubbly. Oh, God, it's going to go. Oh, no, it didn't. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought you were about to lose it um, all over your computer or your oh lap. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. That's by far the biggest glass of champagne oh. I've ever seen. It smells. Um. Oh, God, I don't really know how to describe this. Okay, I'm going to describe it. And y'all are going to get a very incorrect image in your mind. But it's the only way I can think. You know how when you smell like rubbing alcohol and it feels like it just like dries out your nose yeah not that this smells like rubbing alcohol but that's the vibe i get 
honestly, what I just read, it's because I stuck my nose into carbon dioxide. Um, but it doesn't have much of a um, a whiny aroma at all, really. Hopefully it, it doesn't basic. taste like a uh, cat piss. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> that is still like such a brutal... I feel like when someone is like, oh, that tastes like cat piss. I'm like, number one, how do you know? Like, biggest question of the night. Um, number two, like, no, because it's not. And I think the only thing that tastes like that is that. So I didn't want to say it again because it's just, it's so vulgar. I don't know why. <laughs> okay. It's well, I guess, I guess on that note, uh, let's cheers and let's, let's see what we're getting into. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, Wow. I mean, that doesn't really taste like anything. That's fine. If I got this at a wedding, I'd be fine with it. If I ordered it at a restaurant and paid more than like six bucks for the glass, I'd be annoyed. But um, yeah, that's a that's a totally acceptable bottle of bubbly. And for three bucks, honestly, counting in the cost, I, I would say this tastes like a six or seven dollar bottle. So tastes like it's twice as much as it is. Well, then there you go. It tastes like a $6 bottle. <laughs> Hi, Dala! Yeah. It definitely, it doesn't need the orange juice. Good, I'm glad. Like, I'll honestly probably just drink this as is, so. Well, that's awesome. I'm, I'm impressed. Okay. Jay Roger. All right. Coming for the in. win. <laughs> um, so, you know, when you go somewhere and order like a bottle of wine or a glass of wine, and you just have this exact image of, of everything that you want. You know, you want it to be smooth and just exactly what you have in your head. And then you order it and you taste it. And it is exactly what you wanted. Mm, oh, yes. that's what I'm experiencing right now. I'm just getting, it's definitely a full mouth feel, which is, I love the heaviness of white wines because it's different like the way the acidity mm-hmm. like weights your tongue um it's just amazing but this one's so smooth i'm getting the grapefruit and the minerality but i'm also getting a little bit more melon and like some mm. pear and a little bit of a lime lime zest type it's very much a sauvignon blanc it's amazing you know i honestly want to cry right now it's so what i wanted and i I get nervous with Sauvignon Blancs, not yeah. not because I've had a bad one because I, I haven't, but because to me, they're so different. Like, we've had this conversation how, like, I love the French Sauvignon Blancs and I love New Zealand. California ones are okay. Like, yeah. I feel like I can really taste a difference to me. And sorry if this is totally not what it is, but it's what my head says it is. But to me, it's almost like California Sauvignon Blancs remind me more of Pinot Grigio and I don't, yeah. I don't like Pinot Grigio. It's just a lot. There's a lot more tart. It's not as smooth and like buttery is not the right word, but it's like smooth and like yeah. a, buttery is very much the wrong word. Do not take that word for truth. It is not. Um, but just like it just slid right down, and it was everything I wanted. And this is a great bottle for eight dollars. There was another nice. one I had. I actually. I did. I know y'all that I also did a French Sauvignon Blanc um, a few episodes ago, but that's another reason why I wanted to do another one. This one, I almost would say I like a little bit better than that one. And I was obsessed with that one. I bought like five or six bottles of that. But this one, it's smoother. 
and it, it's Melanie. And I honestly need to get the two of them and try them together back to back. They're both exceptional wines in that like seven, eight dollar range. So I'm just mm. saying, if you're looking for a good Sauvignon Blanc, Trader Joe's has great Sauvignon Blancs of all, like France, New Zealand, and California. Uh, Trader Joe's is just great for everything. But their wine, like, top-notch. I know. I know, listeners, that there are some of y'all who don't have access to a Trader Joe's. And I mourn with you because it's not fair. It should be in every city. I legit, when I move places, make sure I'm going to be in a location that is close to a Trader Joe's. I know that sounds crazy. I've lived in larger cities, though. And a lot of larger cities do have them. But I make sure that there's one that's convenient. <laughs> Literally part of what Fair. I look at on the map. So, All right. Well, yeah. We've got our wine. We've got our wine and our topic. Brittany, tell me about the brutal murder uh, you're going to do today. All right. I will. So the case that I did is one a lot of people have probably heard of. So I did The Boy in the Box. Okay. I was wondering how long it would take for one of us to do The Boy in the Box. This is a murder that is brutal in so many ways, and it's a different type of brutality than I think a lot of people would think of when you think of the phrase brutal murders. Because when I originally thought of brutal murders, I was thinking, you know, I don't know, like axes and hammers and like some really fucking scary weapons. Yeah. This one is brutal just to the core of it and every it's like as it keeps going it's more and more brutal so it's a little bit of a different definition but i think you'll get what i'm saying as i go through this case and give some of the details so i used a few sources for this one was an article from all that's interesting by katie serena an article from a and e real crime by hillary scheinfeld and also an episode of buzzfeed unsolved with uh, ryan and shane because love them i love them So in February 1957, there was this young hunter who was going around checking his traps. His traps were set near a park just north of Philadelphia. And so he's going around the brush, seeing if he's caught anything, seeing what's in his traps. And then he sees a small cardboard box. It's just laying discarded on the ground. He walks over to the box because, I mean, this is weird. It's in the same area as his traps. And inside the box was the nude body of a boy wrapped in a plaid blanket. It looked like this boy had recently been washed. So this hunter gets, like, he is afraid that the police are going to confiscate his traps, that he's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, when you discover a body, you're immediately a suspect. So he was just like, you know what? No, I don't, I don't want to get involved in this. So he ignores it. He walks away. That is fucked up. It really is. And that's one of the things that while maybe your human reaction is going to be like, oh, fuck, man, I'm going to go tell them about this and they're going to think I did it. That doesn't mean you don't need to go tell them, though. You still need to report it. If you find something like this, I mean, this is this is someone's life. This is a young boy that's been discarded in a box like you don't walk away from something like that. So he just resumed hunting, decided to forget this ever happened. I, I also just don't even understand it. How? You could just resume going amongst your day. I know. That's not something I can understand either. Um, no. I sure as hell hope I'm never put in the, the you know, have to face finding anything like this. This is why I don't uh, run. Agreed. Runners find yeah. bodies. Exactly. Don't go on jogging trails. Yeah, I know. So several days later on February 25th, there was a young college student driving down the road 
and he noticed like a a bunny running along on the highway. Number one, he must have been going very slow if he spots a bunny. So interesting. He knew that there were traps in this area and that it was an area hunters were. So he decides to pull over and make sure the animal is safe. Also, just really wondering what's going on in this dude's head. Just, I feel like if you're driving on the highway, you're not going to be spotting bunnies. But hey, he did. Uh, also, <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm an asshole, but if I see animals on the side of the road, well, you know, if I saw like a dog or a cat or something like walking down the highway, I would stop. But like I a rabbit, too. no. I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't stop because I'm just like, they're just like, they live in the the grass over there and they just need to turn around and go back to the grass. Also, I'm going like 75 miles an hour. <laughs> By the time I recognize that's a rabbit, I've passed it. <laughs> so he starts like sifting through the underbrush. He's looking for the traps. Um, He wants to get rid of them, you know, save the bunnies. And then he comes across the box. Oh, God. So he too is afraid of interacting with the police because of j- just like I said, However, he reported the body, but he waited a full day before he did it. Oh my god, why? Like, okay, you don't want to be a suspect. You just found this uh, little boy's body. Call anonymously. I mean, it's the 50s. Go to a payphone and be like, hey, this is anonymous, but, you know, I, I found this victim here. I know. And, but the good news is the word did get to the police. So Finally. The, finally, after... Way too long, because it had been a few days. When the police arrived and found the body, the boy's hair was matted, um, and it, it seemed like it was recently cut. There were still clumps of cut hair on his body. His body was severely malnutritioned, or malnourished, and he was covered in some surgical scars. Most notably, there was one on his ankle, his groin, and his chin. Oh. And these weren't like injury scars when you like fall and scrape your knee they were surgical scars blunt force trauma to the head was determined to be the cause of death and due to the cold weather because again it's february and we're in uh, pennsylvania near philly they were not able to determine exactly when the boy died they couldn't determine an exact time of death well and it's also the 50s it's also the 50s yeah it's 1957 so they just you know using what they had couldn't tell you how long he'd been there Despite the fact that this boy looked abandoned, police took his fingerprints and they were really hoping they would find some type of match. Um, and also, because he was young, between possibly three and seven, police were really hoping that he would quickly be identified. However, because when they saw the body that he was very malnourished and didn't seem like he was taken care of, I mean, he was 30 pounds, very scrawny, 3'3", three, three, Even though he looked like he had just been bathed, he was just dirty. And so police worried that since he was not a healthy, well-cared-for boy, no one was going to come forward. Because he seemed like no one, anyone wanted. Oh, God. I think there is also a distinct possibility that he was loved. And, you know, maybe his family was very poor, couldn't afford to bury him. So the box and his baby blanket or whatever was their version of that i i don't i don't know i mean you say that and all you need to bury someone is a shovel so it i i know but i have to think positive things i understand needing to think positive things i totally get that unfortunately the the police were right or i mean your theory could still be right because they couldn't turn themselves in because they would get in trouble but 
No one came forward to provide his name, and he was never reported missing. They did keep his body at the morgue, and visitors from over 10 states came to see if it was someone that they knew, but no one knew who he was. So over the next several years, 400,000 flyers plus, so like over that, were sent out to the Philadelphia area, as well as some surrounding towns in Pennsylvania. And there was a forensic facial reconstruction done. And then they drew a a picture of a young boy who looked really happy. And they put this on all of the posters. Flyers were posted in police stations, post offices, and they were even included in envelopes when people would receive their gas bill. But still, nobody was coming forward with, with any type of information. Wow. I will say, I think that's awesome that they were able to get the word out that much yeah i mean nowadays we have we thankfully have amber alerts we have uh you know the internet and stuff so we're a lot more able to um spread word like that but back then that was such a daunting task and yet Mm -hmm. they still did it they did i mean they were so determined they had very little to work with so another idea that the police had was, you know, he's a younger child, and when babies are born, they get a footprint taken. So they took his footprint, and they compared it to babies born at all the nearby hospitals, but no records were ever found to prove this boy even existed. So the crime scene itself was searched Over and over. Again, like I said, they had very little to work with, so they kept going back, seeing if maybe there was something that they could use. And so one of the main pieces of evidence they had was the box itself. And on the box was a serial number. So things are looking up. They they were actually able to track the shipment to a JCPenney store 15 miles away. And when they looked that up, they found that this particular box had been used to ship a bassinet. And the store that had shipped it, um, they actually shipped a total of 12 of these. But every single purchaser had paid in cash. And so there was no record. Because you got to remember, they don't have the same type of tracking systems that we have. Like, they have the number and it gets from A to B. But I don't really think information is retained the same way that it is now. Well, no. And there wouldn't even be the option to... Okay, well, let's look at the security footage of the people who paid, because there's not. I have such mixed feelings about cases like this through the lens of, I feel like if this happened today, there would be so many more answers. Right. The police were doing everything they could, like, with this limited evidence. And so I told you, 12 bassinets were sold. And this was public information, because, again, police need anything they can get. And so eight of the people who purchased these bassinets ended up reaching out to the police after they read about the story because they wanted to go on record to say that either they still had their boxes, they had placed it outside for trash collection. Basically, they were doing like a cover your ass type of thing where it's like, oh, shit, we bought we got one of those. Larry, Larry, we got one of those. We need to tell the police. And and they did. And even, you know, the police were able to determine that the box in question was shipped to Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. But that was that was really it. And I will say, I I struggle a little bit with the eight people that came forward, because who's to say that was the truth? Well, in my mind, when you were going into this, um, you know, talking, there's 12 people who bought this. I'm like, okay, 
So it's one of those 12 families. But the second you mentioned some of them, you know, put the box out with the trash, that's literally the first time I was like, oh, it literally could have been anyone. It could have been someone at the dump. It could have been a neighbor walking by, grabbed the, I mean, the suspect pool, I guess, is not that 12 people. No, and honestly, the people who I feel like you could really clear their name are the ones that still had the box. I mean, yeah. The people who set it out, you don't know if that's the truth. And the people who set it out, you don't know who could have picked it up. Like, think of how many times you have needed boxes and gotten boxes from someone who just moved. Or there's a big pile of them by the dumpster because someone just moved in. Or you get a big pile of boxes from someone on Craigslist. Like, by the way, (laughs) y'all, there are a ton of ways to get boxes for free. They couldn't trace it. You have no way to know. So the next clue that the police had to work with was the blanket. So they analyzed it and determined that it was from a factory either in Quebec or North Carolina. But they had no way to determine where this particular blanket was purchased because there were thousands. And so it was a certain type of blanket. I'm sure it had a tag. And that's how they were able to narrow it down to these two factories. But yeah. It's it's a blanket. It's not like maybe in the 50s there's necessarily they're not numbered necessarily. Like they really had no yeah. way to tell. They knew it was one of this type of blanket from one of these two places. And so it was a, it was a dead end. They they had nowhere more to go. Uh, yeah, cuz it I mean it's not custom in any way. It's just a blanket you bought at the store. Exactly. But speaking of custom things, funny you said that. The next clue that they had was a blue hat that they found about a few feet away from the body. And this blue hat was one of your fancier type hats. It's not a ball cap. It's a fancier hat made of like some type of corduroy, I think. And the woman who sold the hat remembered the man who bought it because he had requested a custom unique, unique buckle to be added to like the side of the hat. This hat sounds ugly as shit. Corduroy with a buckle on it. <laughs> it's like, like kind of like a, you know, yeah, it's just an ugly hat. Not a beret, but the ones that are kind of like, like a flat newsy boy on the- hat. Yes. Yeah. No, that's what I'm picturing. But I'm also picturing it blue corduroy with a buckle on it for some reason. Ew. So the woman who sold it said that the guy who bought it was blonde, that he was probably between 26 and 30, but that he paid in cash and never returned. So once again, dead end. Obviously, something I am learning is everyone in 1957 and the 60s was paying with cash. I mean, yeah, I know credit cards and stuff were a thing. Not Um, like they are now. Did you know credit cards like American Express and stuff has been around for like 100 years? No, I honestly had it's, no idea when credit cards became a thing. Yeah, I, I've i always thought of it as something like, oh, probably the 70s or 80s. No, nah, it's like 100 years old. Like so, people in like 1920s New York had credit cards. That's really interesting to me because I first, this is funny you say this, because I was thinking about this the other day of like when credit cards became a thing, you know, when we all got sucked into the doom and the debt. No, just kidding. I was watching 112263 on Hulu, which by the way, if you haven't ever seen it, big shout out to one of my favorite Stephen King books. Also, James Franco is phenomenal in this. But there's a scene that takes place in the 60s and like there's a credit card in it. And I was like, what? I had no idea that it was a thing. Yeah. Well, and if any of y'all have worked in retail and had your uh, register go down and you have to pull out the ancient metal like <laughs> slide thing where you put the credit card and then the, the 
I don't know, paper. It's like it. a carbon I'm, paper. Carbon, yeah. Like the carbon cop paper and you just like slide over and just... Uh, I will say, just going back to your case, I wonder if the hat is even uh, connected though. Like it's it's near it. It's, you know, it's near the boy, but it sounds like it's also kind of nearish to a park. Yeah. You know, what if, what if blonde dude like four weeks ago was trotting along and dropped his hat and it has nothing to do with it? And that's exactly why the hat was another dead end. So since the boy's hair had recently been cut, it was possible that he had long hair and maybe had been raised as a girl. So an artist drew up another rendition, you know, same facial features, but with longer hair, but no leads came from it. Still, no one recognized the boy or the girl. Was that a thing that happened in the 50s? I don't know. That seems like a big jump to be like, well... You know, he got his hair cut recently. What if he was raised as a girl? That. All right, dude, they're clearly grasping at straws here. I I mean, I get that. But that is a leap that I would never make. I would never think of. I mean, it has to be something that at least was common enough that someone had seen it before for someone for that person to be like, what if this? I don't think boys and men I don't think it was appropriate to have long hair. That was a girl thing, like in the late 50s. So if someone has long hair, I can see how they would easily think, oh, hmm, maybe for some reason he was being raised as, like being disguised as a woman. Not not necessarily being raised as a girl, yeah. but being disguised as a young girl instead of a young boy. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I just think that's a, such a leap. It's a it's a pretty big leap. So aside from a few pieces of children's clothing that all also led to nowhere, there were no other leads. And so even though the case ran cold, the publicity and interest in the case by amateur investigators, it kept going. And it turned up a few notable theories throughout the years. So there are a ton of theories that you can find on this case because, again, they're just that. They're theories. Uh, you said a ton, and I thought you were going to say there are eight. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and I'm going to tell you all of them. No, I'm just going to dive into a couple because these are some of the um, notable ones that I found in multiple sources. So the first theory is that in 1960, an employee of the medical examiner's office was told by a psychic that the boy in the box had come from a local foster home. The police inquired about the boy at the foster home, and the police found blankets similar to the ones that he had been wrapped in hanging from the clothesline at this foster home, as well as a bassinet that was sold in the same box. So there are things that are connecting this together. Although these are loose connections, they're things that they're seeing. I mean, unless Miss Cleo was a part of it and, like, was involved, no. Because also it's like the blankets that are literally so numerous and so basic that you can't track them down because there's thousands. And again, I could see the bassinet being a red herring. It is a connection. That is true. But but it's not like there's only one. We already know there's at least 12 in the area. But, well, and it's also not like he was found in a bassinet. It was in the right. box. And exactly. I, I'm just stuck on the theory of it being much more likely that the box was thrown out and someone picked it up. 
So the employee theorized that the boy had been born to the daughter of the man who ran the foster home, who also happened to be her stepfather. So it's like she was his wife and stepdaughter. Because, you know, that's oh. what you do. The like the theory states, you know, it was her son and they, you know, they wanted to disguise that it was her son, you know, think it was just like another foster child and that his death had been accidental. So this employee insisted that these facts were like they should be really looked into, but there was no connection that was ever made between the boy in the box and the foster home. Police quickly investigated and they were like, nah, there's nothing here. So the second theory is that a woman referred to as M, or in some sources they call her Mary, she came forward claiming that the boy had been purchased by her abusive mother for human sex trafficking and abused for several oh. years in the home. I know this is, I hate, oh, I hate this theory. Fuck. So M claimed that after the boy vomited up his dinner of baked beans, her mother bashed his head against the wall as punishment. Then she attempted to bathe him during which he died. M says that she later accompanied her mother to a remote spot where her mother placed the boy in a cardboard box and left. The police initially followed this lead because there were remains of baked beans found in the boy's stomach. And oh. his fingers appeared to be water wrinkled as if he'd been in the bathtub. And like I said, he looked like he had been freshly cleaned. So these were both pieces of information that had never been shared with the public. So the fact that M's story had both of them really got them questioning, like, if this is legit. Yeah. I mean, right now, that seems the most likely. And God, I am just hoping with every fiber of my being that it's not. They also were encouraged by M's description of the boy as a small child with long hair. It fit the theory that the boy's hair had recently been chopped, as well as an old testimony from a man who claimed to have seen the boy being placed in the box near the woods. Unfortunately, police eventually let this theory slide. Um, they were unable to verify any of M's claims. Additionally, after they looked into M's background, they found a history of severe mental illness. So when they attempted to corroborate her claims with neighbors and friends, all of them denied ever seeing this young boy in the home. So I have a lot of thoughts on this, and this is my total amateur opinion, but it almost seems like the police dropped the ball because they were like, oh, mental illness? Okay, it's not true then. Well, yeah, because if the young boy was a victim of sex trafficking, it's not like the neighbors are going to see him like having a lemonade stand playing in the yard. Exactly. I really hope it's not. I really hope that it's just like, oh, well, baked beans were super common and she was actually making this up or whatever. I don't know, because I also can't think of what evidence they would, you know, they go to the house and stuff. It's been a long time since he lived there. What evidence are they even going to find? Right. Well, and the other thing is, I agree with what you're saying with baked beans possibly being something very common. It's almost like saying, oh, you know, they were found with a turkey sandwich in their stomach. Okay, well, you know how many people eat a turkey sandwich? Like, that is, that is a coincidence. And that's, you know, yeah. that that's the definition of a coincidence. It is something that seems like, holy shit, that's it. That could be real. This, this could be it. But we have done 
cases time and time again where that evidence is circumstantial. That's the word I was looking for, not coincidence. Kind of the same, little different. It's circumstantial. It's not enough to say that's what it actually was. Yeah, but um, I can absolutely see the police dropping the ball being like, oh, mental illness. Okay. Oh, the neighbors have never seen him. Okay, this isn't true. Mm -hmm. I can too. Again, this was early. This was 60s. And so today in the Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedar Brook, Philadelphia, there's a really large plot, which generally is entirely covered in stuffed animals that are donated by local families and visitors. And the headstone reads, America's Unknown Child, which is, it's a permanent reminder of this boy who lives underneath it, who is never identified. And today, to identify him, it would take a very, like, out of the blue, random uh, surprise to happen, maybe even using DNA testing. So it's like maybe a family member would need to come forward who's much older. You know, this was over 60 years ago. But they still could. Um, Amateur genealogy expert Barbara Ray Venter, she is the woman who helped crack the Golden State Killer case using DNA and genetic research. She confirmed in August 2018 that she's working on the Boy in the Box case. And the Vidoc Society, which is a Philadelphia-based group of investigators, they work on cold case homicide cases and other unsolved deaths. They're also looking into the Boy in the Box case. And the society is specifically asking for those aged 55 or older, if they remember from the early 1950s, a young boy, possibly named Jonathan, living in or within a 40-mile radius of Philadelphia. They really want you to come forward. Um, They're hoping for tips from current or retired physicians who may have treated a boy for a condition that would have left the scars in his groin area, the ankles and chin. But as of now, there's there's no real information. Today, the boy in the box would be about 68 years old. And after 62 years, no one's any closer to identifying him or who killed him. Um, but his case, though, remains unsolved. It is still open. I will say, with um, the moving forward of familial DNA testing, you know, comparing it to just the different 23andMe or the database that shit ton people's dna yep it's i feel like this is another example of how much impact that could have because i feel like they maybe not now maybe in five ten years could test it and they're like oh they share with this person oh that person's great aunt lived in philadelphia you know would have been um like mom aged at this time or whatever something like that Mm mm-hmm There's possibilities, which is why they've never closed the case. This is one that, like I said at the beginning, I think this is a different definition of brutal. It's brutal because it's a child. It's brutal because he was clearly abused and not taken care of. And whether his death was purposeful or accidental, the fact that no one went forward, it's it's a crime. Um, yeah. Even even if with your theory that you said at the beginning, if the family was poor, an accident happened, it's still not okay. I just hope that he was loved in the short life he had. Me too. Um, so like I said, this is a brutal case. Yeah, you definitely went um, not the direction of brutal that I was thinking, 
But uh, I think that very much encapsulates Brutal. I agree. Yes, I did just pour the rest of my bottle into my glass. Yes, it is like an inch away from the rim. I needed this. Well, if your case is as brutal as you've alluded to, you do need it, and so do I. So I actually need to go fill up my wine. It's in the fridge because it's a white wine. So Yeah, well, get ready because my case is fucked up. All right, well, let me go get a full glass. Okay, I'm back. My glass is full. I'm not ready, but tell me. Tell me your case. Tell me about your brutal murder. Well, uh, get ready to drink on that wine and get ready for a lot. Trigger warning for um, sexual abuse, torture, violence against children, all of that. Trigger warning right here, right now. My case is the serial killer Luis Garavito, also known as La Bestia, which is Spanish for the beast. I've never heard of this one, and I can tell you it's because I don't read ones that have anything to do with children. Uh, you've probably kind of heard of it, i.e. you've probably read a sentence or two. Oh. And I think you'll realize it by the end. Okay. Uh, um, so the sources I used, an article from History Collection by Patrick Lynch, an article from Encyclopedia Britannica by John Philip Jenkins, and then I also used Murderpedia and Wikipedia. So, Luis Garavito, he was born in Genova, Colombia, on January 25th of 1957. He was the oldest kid of seven, and he had a nightmare childhood. His dad was very abusive, an alcoholic, and a a fucking monster. So, like, who his mom is is not really known in the sources I looked at, but the people in the town suspect, like, the ideas are... Um, that she was a sex worker there in Genova. And during the time uh, that his mother and father were together, um, she was very brutally abused by his father. His father was also very abusive again to Garavito and all his siblings. And stuff like, when this is when Garavito's like a child, child, like five or something. Yeah, like a baby. Um, His father would force him to watch his mother have sex with her clients and then he would let uh, her clients abuse and molest him eventually garavito he was like no i'm out i'm leaving and when he was like five well i saw two sorts so that was his entire childhood was being sexually abused and being abused by his father And I saw a couple differing sources. One said that he was eight when he ran away from home. The other said he was 16. So I'm not sure. I think he was eight, though, is is what I'm leaning more towards, just from context clues and stuff. Because he ran away from home and he lived on the streets. Um, And when he was eight, which is why I think um, he had already run away at this point, he fell victim to a pedophile. This guy found him and promised to give him, like, hot meal and a place to rest. Like, oh, just, you know, don't spend the night on the street. Just, like, come over. And Garavito did not want to. He was did not trust this guy. But he lived on the streets. He was a kid. A hot meal and a bed is literally the only thing he ever wanted. So he accepted the offer. But instead of taking uh, him to his house, the man led him to an abandoned house and sexually assaulted him. 
God damn it. I, why? Like, why do people have to do that? This is a child on the streets who needs help. Why victimize them? Why take advantage of them and abuse them? I do not know. But a few days after that, he knew he needed to do what he could to be safer. So he joined a gang in the town. And the gang he joined, they would often like mug people for food or money, or they'd carjack people um, and take those like chop shops for money. Honestly, I'm like, I do not fault you at all. That's an obvious choice to join a gang for survival and protection. So as he grew older, um, became like a an adult, like 20s and stuff, um, he was looking to find work. I think at this point, he like wasn't in the gang anymore or like wasn't a big part of it. He would do different jobs, like he was a store clerk, um, he would be like a street vendor who sold like playing cards and stuff, um, but he, he would travel a bunch to do different jobs in different cities. And during the time of him traveling, and I will say one side note, I said it was early 20s, it's from then until, like, y'all will know when, so it's it's decades of him like traveling and working and stuff. But during the time he was doing this, he was traveling, he had a girlfriend, and she had a, like, small kid of her own. But all anyone would say, like, her experience, friend stuff, is that he treated the kid well. He acted just like the, you know, stepdad figure. And he did have friends, and they described him as just a kind guy. But they did know, he he was known to have a pretty kind of explosive temper. Well, um... After the childhood he had, not that I'm not, I'm not trying to like defend him because I know he turns out to be our serial killer. Yeah, I can see him being an angry person. And this is horrible because I feel like, again, opinion of one not coming from, uh, thank God, experience. But I feel like someone who has been abused can take one of two paths, either being someone who advocates against that type of behavior or or just spends their life trying to recover from it or someone who acts out in a similar way when they become an adult yeah well and i think honestly i mean i was having trouble when i was researching and doing this because i feel for him his childhood was horrific yeah but it's one of those things where like both things can be true at the same time you can feel sympathy for him because he was a victim, but you can also recognize he was a monster who would be known as literally the beast and is a horrible person. Both can be true at the exact same time. You know, I agree. And I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you brought that up that both can be true because I almost feel like we as like our human nature is to think that only one thing can be true. And that's not the case. Multiple things can be true. And you can feel anger and empathy um, or sympathy at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I think just naturally we want to look at things as black and white. You know, people are good or people are bad. Or you have sympathy for people or you don't and they're monsters. But that's just not how things work. Things are so dynamic. Everything exists in a gray area. Mm-hmm. And I think it's super fucking important to recognize both parts and not be like, oh, because he did all the things I'm about to talk about, no, we can't have sympathy for him. Because, no, you can for his childhood, for, you know, the victimizing he went through, but you cannot 
discount what he did and how much of a fucking horrible monster he became. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, both are true. Both are true. So, again, as an adult, he's going town to town to work. He lives a very traveling lifestyle. And he also did himself become an alcoholic like his father. And he was known to drink a lot when he'd go out and, like, to bars and stuff. He would get belligerent and he would wind up getting kicked out. And the bar owners were like, no, nah, you're not coming back. Like, he he got a um a reputation. But, um, so that's his background that's kind of uh we're focusing on him during all this time during his travels and stuff is when his murder spree was happening and the most people um like most investigators and stuff who've looked into this agree that it probably started sometime in 1992 when he was 35 years old i am very much uh probably on the side of there were stuff earlier i think especially with the traveling lifestyle and all of that like I don't know. I think 1992 might just be the only, the first confirmed victim. I feel like that's a lot of the times, once you get to the first confirmed, with a serial killer, I feel like there are a lot that happened before then. And like you're saying, traveling lifestyle, that's hard to pinpoint. Yeah. So Garavito's victims, they were all of a similar type and similar profile. Um, along like age, gender, and social status lines. Mm-hmm. He targeted boys between the ages of 6 and 16 who were either um, homeless or orphaned or disadvantaged. That's a wide age range, I will say. 6 to 60, yeah. There's a big difference in someone who's 6 and someone who's 16. Like that 10 years, you're not even the same person. No. And honestly, from what I gather, to me, it sounds like he's targeting people that, I guess, like, victimized. Like, I think that's probably why there's not many people older than 16. He's also targeting a lot of homeless youths or orphaned youths. So there's probably not many that are younger than six kind of thing. So he's basically targeting people that are in a similar life situation that he was when he was young. Exactly. So he would approach these boys, sometimes on crowded streets, sometimes like alone in the countryside. It just depended on where he was, where he was traveling for work. And then he would lure them away with like bribery gifts, you know, some money or candy or jobs or food or whatever. And he also, during the time, he would disguise himself in these different cities. Um, he might be someone who he might dress up as like, I don't know, a, a stone layer or mason or something. So when he comes up, he's like, hey, kids, you want a job like doing bricklaying? It's like, oh, yeah, this looks legit. Sometimes he might dress up as like a priest, a farmer. Uh, he might be a street vendor or a drug dealer. He had a shit ton of disguises mm-hmm. that he would use. And a big part of that was not only to more easily gain the boy's trust, but also to keep um, any kind of suspicions developing of like, oh my god, we've seen this person doing this, like, try to rule out any kind of connections between these deaths. But once he had the a child's trust, he would walk with them until the kids were, like, tired and vulnerable. So he'd be like, oh, it's just a few miles this way, walk with me. But once they're, like, exhausted, more vulnerable, he would tie their hands together He would remove their clothes, and then he would proceed to torture, rape, and sometimes even decapitate his victims. Oh my god. And usually 
this torture. There's very specific details that I decided just right now. I I don't want to go into them, but the rape and torture, it would be prolonged. And when the children's bodies were found, they were always found completely naked. They all had bite marks. And he would also leave bottles of lubricant or uh, alcohol bottles around, like around their bodies. This is um, absolutely horrendous. It, I don't even have words for it because yeah, it's horrifying. There are no words that describe this type of brutality and you no. you you really wow sorry we're like both stumbling over our words but you really can't put words to something like this this is one of those situations that you would like to think is impossible and that no yeah. one would ever do these types of things and that this is this would never happen and the fact that it has and does is what makes this very gut-wrenching and so sad one of the things i can't get over is I mean, it's it's all horrible. This is a small piece of everything horrible, but I still can't wrap my mind around. He uniquely knows exactly what it's like to be these homeless youths and being sexually abused uh-huh. and being taken advantage of. And I'm like, you you know what that's like. You can directly remember and see what that did to you, and you're doing exactly that to so many so many kids and i know oftentimes people that are sexual abusers were victims themselves but i can't i I can't i don't understand but i also know that trauma and stuff that he endured as a child i mean his very first memories if he thinks about what it was like being a kid was the first thing i can remember trauma it's abuse and trauma yeah so um now i'm going to take it a little more um like overhead view Beginning in 1992, from what the records investigation shows, that was when boys between the ages of 6 and 16 began very rapidly disappearing from the streets of Colombia. Because again, it's not like he's in Bogota, which is a massive city. He's going town to town. So some of these towns, it's very noticeable when one person, especially a kid who lives on the street, disappears. Mm -hmm. But... While this is happening, there's also a decades-long civil war that's been going on in Colombia. And so there are a lot of kids that are poor or homeless or orphaned. And it's also not uncommon. I think a lot of people, when the children would disappear, would assume they might be victims of the war or the conflict. Their first thought is not serial killer. Absolutely. If there's a lot going on, your first thought would never be a serial killer. That's generally not most people's first thought. Yeah, because also, again, with him targeting kids that are homeless and stuff, most of them, there's not a police report filed for them disappearing. Well, and a lot of the times no one's looking for them anyway. They don't know if they're dead or alive, regardless. Yeah, but then bodies started being found. These mass graves where he would bury multiple victims started to be uncovered. And again, because of the civil war, I think a lot of the police investigators thought it was a part of the war and not something that they could realistically like investigate as a crime. Obviously, war crimes are very much a thing. And I mean, this shit happening should be investigated regardless of a war going on. But I think that that or not, I think I know it did. That played a big part in this. So he had a couple of areas that were like the mass graves, but he was 
getting boys well, from a lot of different places and bringing them to these mass graves? It um it wasn't like he had three or four mass graves. He had dozens. And he would also oh. sometimes bury uh, his victims alone. I think, honestly, the mass graves were when he would be in town, have a couple victims, travel more. A couple years later, he's back in this town. And just remembered uh, where and, his previous victims yeah. were. And Okay, yeah. you say dozens, and I'm now really scared of his victim count. Dozens, I will say this now, dozens is probably very much undercounting how many mass graves there were. I'm extremely terrified of his victim count. And I will say, I think most of his victims, or maybe not most, many of his victims were not in those mass graves. They were buried on their own because it took until 1997 when more and more of the mass graves were being found that police were like, oh no, this is not war or anything like that. This is a serial killer. God, you know, making that distinction... I'm sure it was difficult to to realize. And, and and I'm sure it was just like this light bulb moment of like, holy shit, we've been looking at this yeah. from the wrong perspective. Well, and then as they started doing investigating and looking into it, that was when they realized, oh, this is not a one town thing. These are similar profiles and similar victims in all these different towns. He's not in a specific area. He's everywhere. And so they started putting much more of an eye on searching and in february of 1998 outside of genova where garvito was born and grew up the bodies of two naked children were found next to each other on a hill and then the next day like a couple meters away another child's body was found all of these kids there they were naked their hands were tied they had very obvious signs of trauma and sexual abuse their necks had been severely cut, some of them decapitated, but there was a note that was found. With them? Yes. And this note had an address listed on it. It was not something Garavito meant to leave behind. I, th- I think it was like a letter or something that fell out of his pocket. Oh, so it's not a note about the victims. It was just like no. a letter he had gotten in the mail and it's there. Yeah. My sources called it a note, but... It's his I don't, mail. I don't think it anything. Yeah. And the address on it was the address for Garavito's girlfriend's house where he had been living previously. Oh my God. And so police like reached out to her and were like, um, the fuck? But she told them she had not seen Garavito in months, but she did have a bag that he'd left her that had some of his possessions in it. And she gave that to the police. And some of the things in this bag, I very much assume she had just never gone through it because also... Your boyfriend like was like, oh, this is my bag of stuff, and leaves or is working, traveling, and just go through it. So I think she'd never opened it. I mean, inside... you might. I mean, I don't know. I think if I could see either way, but because of what's in it, I don't think she looked inside. Um. Well, I'm I'm assuming she did not. So kudos to her uh, for not being nosy. I would have looked. Fair. In the bag, there were pictures of young boys. He also had detailed journal uh, entries he wrote about each of the murders. Okay, if you are going to write this stuff down in a journal, you are wanting to eventually be caught. I'm sorry, that is straight up leaving evidence. Honestly, though, any serial killer out there, write all that shit down. Just do it. (laughs) Write it all down. You know, mail it to the police. 
Yeah. Hey, did you guys know that... Put uh, your address on it. Police's Police's Police cannot determine where a floppy disk came from or files. Yeah. No, they have no you idea. Know, just, just send it all to them. Oh my God, you're taunting them. It's like so crazy. Also, Make sure to put a return address on that. Also, if you're going to send the police a floppy disk, like, you are dating yourself. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if I was given a floppy disk right now, I... I wouldn't know what to do with it. I don't think I know of anywhere where I could find a computer to plug it, like, shove it into. You totally can't. Also in his bag, though, he had tally marks for his victims, and then also just a bunch of cash. Like one piece of paper with all the tally marks, or tally marks everywhere? I, I think it was probably in his journal, I imagine. It just said tally marks. So this information that they got from his girlfriend... It led them to his residence where I guess he lived, but also he was traveling. So I don't, I don't know if it's just empty most of the time, whatever. But when they got there, it was empty and vacant. Not surprised. Yeah. I mean, detectives, when they saw he wasn't there, they thought either he's traveling for work or he's actually right now attempting to find another victim. Just a couple days after they narrowed in on him and wanted to bring him in for these as like the main suspect, mm-hmm. he was actually picked up by local police on a completely unrelated charge. They didn't know who like they had him. That always but, happens. Um, it always happens. But he had attempted to rape a boy, but a homeless man saw the struggle and saw the fight and like jumped in and rescued the kid hero yes absolute fucking hero um so he saved the kid and then called the police or like i don't know waved them down or whatever um but garavito was arrested but again the police had no idea who they had oh my god and this is one of the things that's so frustrating but also understandable because it's like those detectives aren't going around to every officer to be like hey okay if you see something like this, let us know. So it's to them, they're just picking up this guy who's being this fucking monster and he was stopped. And so they arrested him. They had no idea yeah, who they had picked they up. They had no idea how much of a monster he truly was. Yes. Are you ready to be uh, even more pissed off? No. They let him go? Thankfully, no. But he'd actually been in police custody before in 1996. So... On June 8th of 96, a young boy went missing in Boyaca in Colombia, and five days after that, his body was found, and the victim's mother began to, like, conduct her own search, and she discovered, like, talking to people who last saw him and doing a full-on investigation on her own, she realized that he was last seen in a shop in town with some other kids and then this guy this random older guy was buying them all candy and garavito was identified like those kids were like yeah that's the dude that's the one who bought us all the candy oh my god and the police brought him in for questioning but he told them he was like yeah i bought them candy but then i left it was these bunch of like homeless kids i was like sure i'm gonna buy them some candy dude the amount of times that serial killers are in police custody i feel like it's it's like a pattern like they've always been arrested for something yeah but they get away with what they're actually truly doing and then when they're caught they're caught on one of those random something things and 
I mean, I, I don't know if that's where yours is going. I just always think of, like, Ted Bundy. Like, it's always, like, ca- yeah. car things. Like, they're always like, oh, your taillight was out. Or, oh, you didn't use your blinker. Which, mm-hmm. like, and then they cause a scene and get arrested. And then they find out who they truly have. It's just, it's crazy to me how often that happens. Which, yeah, maybe it's not as crazy. I guess if they did get arrested, of course they're going to pretend to not be who they are just in case. I mean, yeah. Well, and when he's brought in in this in 1996, they're just questioning him because he was the last person seen with the boy before he died, buying him candy. Like, right now, back in 1996, they're they're not... Like, he's a suspect in it, but not really. Right. Um, and when he told him, he was like, yeah, I bought him candy, and then I left. It it was The story was enough that the cops were like, okay. And they let him go. And then four days after that, he murdered again. But... Jump back into the future. He is in custody. He's been arrested for the attempted rape of the boy in Genova. He's booked and they take him into questioning. Um, his arrest was on April 22nd of 1999. So police are questioning him about the attempted rape because they still don't know who they have. But after questioning and stuff, he cracks and he confessed to the murder of 140 young boys. What? A hundred and forty. That is just what he confessed to. When you told me he had dozens of mass graves, I don't I don't know. I don't know what number in my head I was considering as mass, but I was thinking, okay, yeah, he's killed a lot of people. Maybe it's like fifty or something. You know, like that is an astronomical crazy number. A hundred and yeah. would you say forty what? A hundred and forty is what he confessed to. Oh my, oh my God, this is so sick. He had the tally marks so he could keep track of it because that's too many to remember. And the police, they had his confession, but they wanted more. They weren't just going to go off his confession, but his DNA was on the victims. And a thing they had in evidence from a previous victim is a pair of glasses that were designed for a specific eye condition. Like, I don't know, I think bifocals or, but something specific. Yeah. Um, But... Garvito had that eye condition. Those were his glasses that he'd left behind. So with the DNA, with that, and with his confession, they had him. Yeah. So Garvito was charged with 172 counts of homicide. And he was found guilty in 138 of them. And get get ready to be pissed. So No, no, his, I see where this is going. And I yeah. hate it. His sentence, with the number of victims, what it was, his sentence should have been 1,853 years in prison. But in Colombia, the maximum prison sentence is 40 years. And... That fucker could still be alive after that. Oh, get ready. And as just parts of the penal code that's written in, how it is, since he had cooperated with police, he confessed, he showed them the location of some of the bodies... His sentence was reduced to 22 years. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Um, No, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry for being so pissed right now because when someone, even though if they're cooperating with you and they are confessing, like that's great and all that helps tie things up. But if they have a count, if they are convicted of 138 murders 
What in God's name makes you think that 20 years in prison is going to make them change their ways? Clearly. Like, and hey, sorry if I'm sounding like one of those, like, oh, he can't be rehabilitated, rehabilitated, but I truly don't think someone like, someone like that can. And no, no, someone like, someone like that does not deserve to be back in the free world. No. Well, get ready, because I'm going to tell you something that's going to horrify you. No. But then something that'll make it a little bit better. Okay. So, to put this in perspective, his early release, like, his release could be as soon as 2021, next year. But I think the Colombian prison system, uh, like, judicially the way it's run, is similar to how Norway runs there. If y'all remember quite a few episodes ago, um, I did the Utoya massacre in Norway, and Norway is a country that has, I think their maximum sentence is like 20-something years as well, but you can, like, it can be added on to, it's basically like after 22 years, you go out for parole, kinda, and they can be like, I oh, know, and then you stay, kind of thing, because Garvito's probably going to be in prison forever, like, for his life, because in Colombia and also fucking in general but like in their judicial system people who commit crimes against children they they don't get any like benefit of the justice good so there's not any way that he would realistically get leniency so realistically his prison term is probably closer to 60 to 80 years which for how old he was he was like 40 or something when he was arrested he'll be in there till he dies but i wish i wish he wasn't just put in for like 20 it, it some of it is also yeah. just the it's the principle yeah it's the principle of, thank you that's what i was looking for it's the principle of the thing where it's like if you're never gonna let him out then why not just give him a sentence of 60 years you know yeah well it's it's something that like i don't know as long as it's written into it that it's like realistically you're never getting out cool but also the fact that he could also get out next year. I know, because we can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And it's it's a gamble. And that's why it pisses me off. You're creating this gamble of like, well, you know, he's never really going to like get out. But like, maybe he could because actually this is the way the law's written. And I don't know. It's all up to opinion and perception and how he's been behaving. And if we think he can be fit in the society, then okay, we'll let him go. And it's like, no. Uh, yeah, well, I think when it, when you get to 140 victims, no. There should be no leniency with that type of, of victim count. Like, n- no. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's not something that you can rehabilitate someone. I know. And like, for. we're all about rehabilitation. We are all about that being a goal. And mm-hmm. while he did these monstrous things, I hope that he is being rehabilitated. But that doesn't make me think he can be rehabilitated enough to be put back into society. Well, I mean, the thing is, the focus should always be rehabilitation, but it also is a punishment. Yes, and it is. You have to have both in it at the same time, because... Such a great point, and thank you for taking... I, I, like, sometimes feel like I struggle with making sense because i'm like they're a human but they did this thing that's so fucked up but they're still a human but they're fucking garbage and it's it's hard to balance that rehabilitation with the punishment but it should be it should be a balanced thing well and it's also for me and i know just in general it's so much easier to go the full rehabilitation mindset with victimless crimes yes i'm like yeah 
But when there's a victim, especially something as heinous as this, no, you should never get out. Never. Like they, but sorry, one last thing. It's like they should help you, but it not at the like, and maybe one day you'll get to leave. Like that's not the goal. The goal is just helping you have remorse and be a better human being, but you're going to have your punishment and you're going to serve your punishment and it should be for the rest of your life. Exactly. Yes. So in the end, the exact number of Garvito's victims is never going to be known. Yeah. There are a lot of, um, investigators and researchers that think it could be as high as 400 what yeah because again the number they're basing this off of is how many he confessed to i mean they charged with 178 so there's at least 38 more uh victims that had enough evidence to uh charge him with but that is not discounting how many victims they haven't found yet uh how many victims have been mistakenly identified as maybe war casualties how the hell do you kill 400 people in the span of, what, five, six years? Uh, that we know of. If, if we say it started in 92. Yeah, six, seven years. But I, I think it's much longer. And also another thing that uh, that number of victims doesn't take into account is he also lived in Ecuador for part of his life. Oh, my God. And there were young boys who were murdered there or went missing there. He could be connected to those, too but it's not known. So today, he is considered to be the world's worst serial killer. But yeah, do you see what I mean now when I said earlier in this episode that I don't think my case will be the lesser uh, intensity-wise? Yeah, I do. I was about to say, actually, I don't think we need a postmortem. This episode altogether was the worst ever. Yes, I will say one thing I hate so much about both our cases how little we know about the victims i know i know i mean in my case so many of the victims were orphaned uh, or homeless and we don't know and in your case like i feel like the point of your case or like the the big thing about it is how much is not known about the boy in the box well or the killer like we literally know nothing and that to me is one of the most brutal things when it comes to a murder not only do you not know the victim you don't know who did it you don't have any solid clues directing you to any of these answers and so literally like the fact that the day that he was found to today the number of like we have no answers we can tell you details of um what happened to him but it really doesn't go further than that we know nothing and that is and in, heartbreaking. It's a human that is essentially non-existent is what it seems. Like it's that line I said of how after they looked at the footprints and everything and how there was no proof that this boy existed, that hurts. I will say in your case, one thing I did love about it, so much is not known about him, his identity and everything, but he will never be forgotten. No. He'll be remembered, and while it is for horrific things, he at least but, is not a completely forgotten person. Yeah. I mean, he... There is a lot of horrible things he's remembered for. I mean, that's that's why he's known, is for being a victim. But to this day, 60 years after his death, people leaving stuffed animals. I know. Every day. Like, people, and so many. I mean, he's 
never going to be forgotten. Even if you don't know his name, you know him. And that that was one thing that I did enjoy about your case. And one thing I do like about cases we have that still have impact today mm-hmm. and still have like ceremonies isn't the right word, but like um the yogurt shop murders in Austin. The fact that people will still to this day, decades later, leave coins or stuffed animals outside the former building. Like I, know. I mean, as people the thing that scares us most is being forgotten, like, and not leaving impact. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, at least for me, I guess I'm generalizing for everyone, but I, I think at its core, not being remembered and being forgotten is one of the things that people fear most. And absolutely, I also know, though, that it's not necessarily important that it's your name that's remembered or your face, but the fact that you are remembered. That you existed. Yeah. There are just, I don't know. That's just something I loved in your case is that to this day, 60 years after his death, there are millions of people all around the world who remember him. Yeah. And I love that the city came together to give him a a headstone and a grave. And it's Mm -hmm. a pretty large plot because everyone remembers him and because everyone is celebrating the small life that he did have he just he will never be forgotten i feel like the boy in the box is up there with like the Lindbergh baby like these are cases most people know about and if you don't know the details that's fine but i feel like most people have heard about the boy in the box and even just like that phrase alone it just shows and it sucks it sucks that he's known for such a tragic thing but it's great that he's remembered And I love that it went from something that he was almost viewed as as nobody's child. No one claimed him. He he was never identified. And so he became everyone's child. Yeah, I was hoping that was where you were going. Um, So. But I will say, (laughs) we we just talked a lot about my case there. I, I still think you brought the most intense case because. Yeah. I honestly don't even know what to say about your case it was that it it is that horrific it is that impactful it has that victim count it's that heartbreaking that there's really yeah. no words besides the fact that yeah it was the most intense yeah i i'm done with my case i don't want to i don't want to talk about my case or think about it more it, it's too, it's so much well so Honestly, today, and like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, there's a lot going on right now in the world. We're all really tense, anxious, and we just discussed two really fucked up cases. So I'm thinking we need to yeah. just like lift it up here for a moment and just just yeah. talk for like two minutes about something that's not this. You know, something that kind of connects to the remembering uh, people before to something now that I think is really cool. I will be totally honest. I don't know if this number is accurate because I definitely got it from the book The Fault in Our Stars uh, by John Green. Also, you've probably seen the movie. But there's a big part of it where uh, Hazel, the main character, is it's at the Anne Frank house in uh, Amsterdam. And one of the things they have uh, in the museum there is a book with all of the names of the people who died in the Holocaust. And anyway, she wonders how many people have died and what would it take to remember everyone. And 
with how many people there are alive today, it's like if everyone remembered 11 people, every human who's ever died would be remembered. If everyone remembered 11 people. 11. I mean, granted, the big thing is a lot of us all think of or remember the same people. Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, like, but no one is thinking about Helen, who died in Macedonia in 800 BC. I don't, you know, like, but just that number, I'm like, oh, it's 11. It's not even like, I don't know, oh, you'd have to remember 8,000 people. It's 11. But I think that's one of the things that, I don't know how I took this roundabout tangent, but I'm coming back. Okay. Um, That's one of the things that I really like about our podcast is we do this research in these cases into these victims that without this podcast i would have never known about i know and yet doing this research i'm always going to remember georgia cruz i'm always going to remember sylvia likens those are just memories that are going to always stay alive with me and i i think that's awesome i think that's one of the coolest things about true crime podcasts and the true crime genre is that these people that are no longer around or with us to do things and make impact by remembering them. We make the impact for them. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful statement because we have discussed so many cases that I would have never known about had it not have been for this podcast. And, and I appreciate that. It makes me, I know this may sound really weird, but I feel like it makes me a better person because I pay more attention to things now. Yeah. I think more about people. Um, and I don't I don't say that lightly because we talk about some of the most heinous things that can happen to someone. And I decide not to take the route of letting this make me afraid. I decide to mm-hmm. take the route of letting me remember and celebrate uh, victims who who this has happened to and to also just be aware and to share yeah. random fucking knowledge. Just think about it. I'm sure, Tyler, that you have had a moment that you were able to share some random tidbit of information that may have impacted someone else's life that could be traced oh, yeah. back to something that we've read about or researched or a case that we've studied. And I feel like that's been the case in my life a lot more than I actually realized because I think it's become just so second nature and not in the like, Oh, make sure to have your keys out so you can stab a mugger, like not stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but things just to, to be more aware and be more cautious. And it just becomes a part of you. I think at the end of the day, the absolute most important thing or the best thing that we as people can do or not can do, but do, is when another person's story becomes a part of yours, I'm like, that's, I feel like that's the meaning. Oh my god, did I just discover the meaning of life? Maybe. But I, I feel like at the end of the day, when someone else's story becomes a part of yours, when you carry that with you, and carry them longer than they could carry themselves, I guess, that's so powerful. It is. Well, I I think this was a beautiful wrap-up. And I agree. You know, if you guys feel similar, have thoughts, let us know. We would love to continue this conversation. I feel like this is really the root of who we are and why we do this. And we would love to chat with some of you guys about what your thoughts are. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you agree. 
let us know. And if you did enjoy this episode, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you thought. And we really appreciate it. We are more and more people are getting to hear us. And it's all because you're sharing the word. So thank you. Absolutely. I think one of the things, one of the best parts of my day is when I get that email notification. It's like someone left a review. And I'm like, let me stop everything and read this. What they say. Like that's, <laughs> I love it so much. I love hearing from you guys. Um, also, if y'all want to continue the dialogue, chat with us. Make sure to like and follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, So make sure, yeah, do it. Do the thing. Do the thing. Chat with us. Check us out. Let's look at our beautiful faces. Look at, yeah, we're gorgeous. Look at us. Mm -hmm. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.